Hello, I'm Mark Sweeney, and this is a special Halloween episode of I'm the Gun. No Shanna this week, and no Legion talk. This time out, I'm going to profile one of my favorite characters from the supernatural side of the DC Universe. Doctor 13, the Ghostbreaker. Dr. Terrence 13 has been around for a long time, his earliest appearances dating back to the early 1950s. Since then, he's skulked around the edges of the DC Universe, a perennial backup feature or guest star, making him prime I'm the Gun material. As the super cynical person that I am, I've always had a special affinity for the character, whose role in the stories in which he's appeared is debunker of the supernatural. I've always kind of likened him to Scooby-Doo's Mystery Incorporated gang, pulling off the mask in his own way at the end of every story, exposing so-called mediums by revealing hidden audio equipment, or exposing swamp monsters for costumed crooks that they really are. got a little thrill when researching some of the few Doctor 13 appearances not in my collection to see that he makes at least a cameo appearance in an issue of Scooby-Doo Team-Up featuring Batman. I found it impossible to track this physical issue down, number two, I think. So I may just have to surrender to the digital version, but is there anyone out there who can confirm that the good doctor puts in just the token panel cameo I assume it to be? So I'd like to just give a very brief overview of the character's publishing history, and then I'd like to recap a couple of his adventures, including his very first appearance from Star Spangled Comics number 122 from November 1951. Then I'm going to go over a three-parter from the early 80s during his stint as a feature in the title Ghosts, where Dr. 13 tries, some might say foolishly, to disprove the supernatural nature of perhaps DC's greatest ghost, the Spectre. So as I said, Dr. Terry first appeared in Star Spangled Comics number 122, making the cover. In fact, pushing co-feature Tomahawk out of the cover spot, who been there since he himself pushed co-co-feature Robin the Boy Wonder off the top spot a few years prior to that. So all three features would continue to share the page count until Star Spangled ceased publication with issue number 130. In these early adventures, drawn by Leonard Starr, Dr. 13 came across as a competent investigator, handsome and rugged, but by no means a he-man, kind of like a skeptical Bruce Wayne. He shared his adventures with his fiancée, then wife, Marie. As the star of his own feature, things may always seem to break his way, and in Dr. Thirteen's world, the supernatural just d didn't seem to exist. Once Star Spangled Comics folded, however, it would be about 15 years before Dr. Thirteen was seen again. By the late 1960s, DC had a thriving mystery-slash-horror line, and it was into this landscape that Dr. Thirteen was reintroduced. Terrence Thirteen was brought into the Phantom Stranger feature, first in a tryout in the title Showcase, then in The Stranger's Own Series. Dr. Thirteen's skeptical nature kind of clashed with the Phantom Stranger's mysterious nature. He stubbornly refused to go along with a story that even the readers were in on, that the supernatural was a matter of course in the DC Universe now. And as a result, Terry lost a lot of his heroic sheen that he'd had in his earlier adventures. 
He also kind of ironically began suffering from poor eyesight and gained a pair of spectacles. So he floated in and out of the Phantom Stranger's adventures, kind of being made a fool of as he was so obviously blind to what was going on around him. Though he did have a few solo backup tales where he was allowed to bust ghosts. Most of these were drawn by Tony DeZuniga. One of these backup appearances I had to fork over some bucks for is the lead story. This was in Adventure Comics, was the first appearance of Black Orchid. And for some reason this comic has never been reprinted. Dr. 13 got his own feature for a time in the series Ghosts, where he got some ghost busting done. There's a mix between that and his encountering things that he couldn't explain. We'll be talking more about one of these stories a little later. Then he was brought in by Jerry Conway to hang out with Batman for a few issues of Batman and Detective Comics. Now, I'm pretty sure he wasn't seen, even in a cameo, in the landmark Crisis on Infinite Earths title DC published in 1985-1986, and this is despite every other character DC ever published showing up there. And I guess I could be wrong, although I've read that so many times. Uh, please let me know. Please let me know if I'm wrong about that. I always thought this was a shame that he didn't turn up in Crisis, um, especially because he did turn up in a couple of issues of DC Challenge, which was a maxi-series that began publication, I think, as Crisis was ending. Now, I recently got DC Challenge and uh, read it after years and years of anticipation, mostly due to that house ad, that cool house ad featuring scenes involving some of my favorite characters like Jonah Hex, Dr. Fate, Adam Strange. Uh, but I've got to say it was a huge letdown. In fact, I can't even remember any of the details of the story despite reading it just a few months ago. Dr. 13 did show up in Who's Who, the, the series profiling every character ever published by DC in a nice Tony DeZuniga drawn page. And this was a fitting choice of artist as I said he'd done quite a few of the Dr. 13 backups from the 1970s. And this is where I first encountered the character. This was the first issue of Who's Who that I bought off the shelf as an eight-year-old. And um, of course you can hear more about Who's Who, uh, this issue in particular, with Dr. 13 and so many, so many more great characters on episode seven of the Who's Who podcast. Definitely check that out. It's, it's always a great listen. Dr. 13 seemed tailor-made for DC's Vertigo line, and he did follow old friend the Phantom Stranger and other similar characters like Dr. Occult into Vertigo and got his own Vertigo Visions one-shot, where Terrence 13 was written as a, as a total asshole, which kind of seemed to work for his character. I think it was here, this, this marked the end of his marriage to Marie. Uh, he turned up in Grant Morrison's Zatanna miniseries, Hitting the jackpot, apparently, scoring a date with Satana. Uh, he dies a horrible death in that series, but apparently he got better as he featured as the backup, again, serving as a backup to the Spectre in a miniseries called Tales of the Unexpected from 2007. The Doctor 13 backup in that series was awesome. He teamed up with a slew of forgotten characters like I Vampire and Captain Fear, just the kind of stuff that I'd like to feature here. 
series was kind of a fourth wall breaking story where he and his teammates fight for their chance to remain in continuity and not to be relegated to limbo. A great Brian Azzarello story with some really cool Cliff Chang artwork. Now, I guess by this point he had a daughter, Tracy 13, who was in the Teen Titans or something. And this is about as far as I want to go in my character overview. I know he got some play in the New 52. It was an interesting take on the character in All-Star Western, where he was a mutton-chopped ghostbuster in the Wild West. But uh, I want to get into some, some old stories. And I'm going to start with the very first. Star Spangled Comics number 122, a book shared with Robin and Tomahawk. Dr. 13 gets the cover. And what a great cover. Great logo for this title. Covers by Leonard Starr, who also drew the story. Couldn't find any reference to a writer for the story, though. The book was edited by longtime DC staffer Jack Schiff. First Doctor 13 story opens on a rainy night. The good doctor, already a noted explainer of the unexplainable, arrives at his ancestral home, Doomsbury Hall. He has to make his way through a throng of press who are there to report on this momentous occasion. Dr. Thirteen had made a pact with his deceased father that on the fifth anniversary of his father's death by automobile accident, Terrence would try to make contact with his father in the beyond. He promises to the reporters lined up outside Doomsbury Hall to report back should anything happen. Just before entering the estate, Thirteen is stopped by his fiancée, Marie, who Kind of gives him one last chance to back out. Is he sure he wants to go through with this? Terry says that it was his father's wish, so despite his doubts, he's he's got to do it. But he's got to do it alone. As he makes his way through the house, 13 flashes back to his childhood and a secret room kept locked by his father. At the age of 15, Terry manages to find his way into the room, which contains a series of paintings which each of them depicting the horrible murder of Terry's ancestors throughout the history of the Thirteen family. You know, what gruesome wall art, not the, not the kind of thing you'd find at Pier 1. Terry's father catches him snooping and resigns to the fact that sooner or later Terry would learn of the curse of the Thirteen. And this is where it gets weird. Interesting, but weird. It seems that the Thirteen men, and occasionally the women, were so far ahead of their time scientifically that their peers accused them of being magicians and were either stoned, burned at the stake, drowned, or otherwise gruesomely executed. For example, Raphael Thirteen, who lived in the 12th century, was caught arranging stones in a rough model of the solar system. Of course, this went uh, against teaching at the time, so he was drowned in the Tiber River. Rachel, 13, was ahead of her time in the field of anesthesia, but she was burned at the stake in 17th century Salem. So to guard against the curse of the 13, Terry's father had lived his life in defiance of superstition and encouraged his son to do the same. He tells Terry never to believe that his life is governed by anything other than natural causes. And his son agrees. On Terry's 21st birthday, 13 Sr. presents Terry with the terms of this pact. 
Terry is provided with a series of five questions that only he and his father know the answer to. Terry promises to ask the questions of his father five years after the event of his death in order to prove once and for all that ghosts don't exist. A couple of years later, when Thirteen Senior perishes in a fiery car accident, the stink of the Thirteen curse follows Terry around. He's shunned at restaurants and treated with distrust. He decides to shudder Doomsbury Hall and to combat creeping superstitious feelings, he decides to start up a ghost-busting business. He quickly builds a reputation as a first-class psychic investigator, exposing frauds and easing minds until the day of the five-year anniversary of his father's death, which brings us back from Terry's flashback as the clock tolls twelve in Doomsbury Hall. On the twelfth toll, Terry asks the first question, that he and his father came up with about the name of a particular tree that he climbed as a child. To Terry's surprise, a ghostly voice responds with the correct answer, Mr. Grumpy, which is funny as this could be a name used to describe Terry himself as depicted years later. A second question gets another correct response. Now frantic at this point, Terry's mind grasps at the possible logical solutions and somehow notices that the grandfather clock in the room seems to with the pre-recorded message from his father. Marie shows up to confess that she had, she'd been in cahoots with the old man. She would plant the recording as a last, true, and way, way cruel test, proving to Terry that the quote-unquote supernatural could always be traced to natural causes, or in this case, mechanical. He leaves Doomsbury Hall with Marie for what he thinks is the last time, seemingly convinced of his father's dogmatic beliefs or disbeliefs, though he does question whether he himself is due to face the curse of the Thirteen someday. So this great story sets up Dr. Thirteen for the rest of his star-spangled comics run. The Leonard Star art certainly rises, I think, above the standard, sometimes crude art of the Golden Age, and certainly provides a bridge to some of the more sophisticated art of the Silver and Bronze Ages. You can definitely see the influence of Starr's work on the art of Neil Adams and, and artists of that sort. The script is really good, too. It's got a lot going on in eight pages, you know, so compact, I wish I could credit the author, who told in eight pages what, what would undoubtedly be the entire first season of scripts of the imaginary hit CW show 13. This first Doctor 13 story was reprinted in the middle of Showcase number 80 with the Phantom Stranger issue, which reintroduced the audience to Terence after so long an absence. And again, uh, the story was reprinted in the first volume of Showcase Presents The Phantom Stranger. I want to jump ahead now about 30 years to another Doctor 13 story that follows up in a way on that origin story. Writer Paul Kupperberg revived Dr. 13 for a series of features in the horror anthology Ghosts. And it's kind of funny, Dr. 13 began by being the cover feature with number 95, but his story was always last in the book, you know, in the position of backup, yet again. With issue number 97, Kupperberg began a story where 13 comes into conflict with DC's premier ghost. No, not that bored dead man talking about the Spectre. The Spectre had been a DC star going back to the Golden Age and 
had not too long before this had his own feature in adventure comics where his mission of punishing criminals and bad people took on a particularly grisly slant. Things like running their bodies through giant cheese graters or cutting them up with scissors, etc. Now, the Spectre being a character going back as far as he does, traditionally at this point in DC history existed in a dimension where Earth was called Earth 2, and Dr. 13 and his stories were thought to be taking place on Earth 1, but I don't really want to overanalyze this continuity situation, and for the sake of ease, we'll just say that the, the Spectre is the Spectre of Earth 1. Or we just won't say anything, and you can skip the last... 12 seconds of this recording. Suffice it to say, Dr. 13, the vehement non-believer, and Spectre, the vengeance of some almighty being personified as a green-hooded ghost, they make a, a fitting pair. This story begins, as I said, in Ghosts number 97. It's written by Copperberg. Drawn by newcomer at the time, Michael Adams inked by Tex Blaisdell, and lettered by Shelley Lefferman, colored by Jerry Serpa, and edited by Jack C. Harris. The cover to this issue is by Jim Aparo, who, in my opinion, and many, many others, I'm sure, draws the definitive specter. So good. Uh, the only other person who comes close is maybe, maybe Murphy Anderson? Um, and I was sad to hear of his passing this week. That man left behind somebody of work. One of the Silver Age greats, no doubt. At this point, Dr. Thirteen had put ghostbusting on the back burner and now was known as an author specializing in the supposed supernatural. The story called Dr. Thirteen and the Spectre opens with he and Marie guests at a New York City seance conducted by a Swami Rishni, in which the Swami seems to be reaching through the veil to communicate with a rich widow's husband. Dr. Thirteen, having seen this a million times before, calls shenanigans and pulls the Swami's turban off to reveal a mini-projector which he used along with a throat microphone and some superventriloquism to con the poor widow. Well, the poor rich widow. An outraged Swami storms out of the room, but is stopped short by a gang of gun-wielding commie terrorists who plans to take the entire occupancy of the room hostage. The housekeeper is caught telephoning the police and is paid for her heroics with a gut full of lead courtesy of a particularly vicious terrorist named Dina. At this point, the Swami panics and he too is gunned down. One of the terrorists noticed that the SWAT team has arrived, as has police detective Jim Corrigan, a name longtime DC fans will recognize. The Spectre, of course, we're led to believe is the ghost of the murdered Jim Corrigan, who's been charged by a divine being with punishing practitioners of evil. And in that respect, Corrigan had been given a new lease on life. Corrigan orders that nothing be done until he says so, as he plans to sneak around the back looking for a way into the home. Inside, Dr. Thirteen tries to convince the creeps to surrender, but that's a no-go. He happens to be holding the Swami's turban and projector, and uses the light to distract the lead terrorist in an attempt to disarm him. 
This leads to a tussle, which is interrupted by a cloud of billowing smoke, out of which appears the Grim Avenger, the hooded specter. And boy, is he pissed. The terrorists vainly try shooting at the ghost, but that, of course, accomplishes nothing, And as the specter's eyes look like skeletons. With a wave of his hand, he turns the terrorists into water, which falls to the floor, soaking the carpet. Now, Michael Adams, like I said, was a newcomer at the time, and I didn't see too many credits to his name on Comic Book DB. Gotta be honest, his work in general didn't knock me out. Sometimes his anatomy does strange things, necks seem to come and go. But I've noticed that his layouts are, are really quite good. This page, where the terrorists are killed, stands out to me. I really love the panel showing the water on the floor, running between the legs and feet of Dr. Thirteen and the Spectre. Terry's feet are firmly planted on the ground while the specter floats above it by about a foot and a half. A very, very effective visual metaphor. The killing of these creeps outrages Dr. Thirteen, who asks what kind of monster could do such a thing. The specter vanishes just like he came in in a puff of smoke just as the police burst in, led by Lieutenant Corrigan, who strangely doesn't seem to go for the ghost story. Dr. Thirteen doesn't necessarily believe it himself, he, he's just reporting the events as they happened, though in the last panel of the story he vows to himself to bring the inhuman monster called the Spectre to justice. This is a nice little start of the story, which picks up in the very next issue of Ghosts. The story in the back of Ghosts number 98, called The Haunted House and the Spectre, is by the same creative team as last time, apart from Ben Oda, who's doing the lettering this time. It opens with Dr. Thirteen digging through the files of one of the city newspapers looking for information on the Spectre. There, he runs into Earl Crawford, a reporter who'd had dealings with the Spectre in the past. Turns out Crawford had been seeking Thirteen out as he was after some information about an old business partner of Terence's father, Daryl Sontag. Sontag is being investigated for selling bad construction material. A building collapsed recently, killing 30 people. Crawford hoped to look through 13 seniors' papers for any possible clues of wrongdoing on the part of Sontag, and Dr. 13 agrees to take Crawford to Doomsbury Hall to look through the paperwork. We're then taken to Sontag's office, where Lieutenant Jim Corrigan asks to see the businessman. This causes Sontag to panic, wondering if some incriminating evidence is still where he left it, somewhere on Long Island. A sign for a service elevator on the wall tells us that Sontag has he's got no intention of speaking to Corrigan. On the way to Doonesbury Hall, which is on Long Island, with uh, Crawford and Marie, Terry relates the details of his ancestral estate, the pact made with his father, and the origins of his intense skepticism. When the trio enters the mansion, they find Daryl Sontag snooping around, armed with a gun. Sontag tells the group that some uh, incriminating documents are indeed hidden in 13 seniors' files, and, and when Terry's father had threatened to turn them over to the police, Sontag arranged for the car accident that killed Dr. 13's father. This, of course, shocks Terry as Sontag says he's prepared to leave no witnesses. Just then, a cloud of dark smoke explodes from the nearby filing cabinet. 
and what emerges from the smoke looks like the ghost of Terry's father. Dr. Thirteen uses the distraction to attempt to disarm Sontag, but the ghostly being begins to morph into the green and white specter who chillingly forces an obviously struggling Sontag to point the gun at his own head and pull the trigger. Just as in the end of the last story, Dr. Thirteen accuses the specter of murder, but the ghost, as he fades away, claims only to have removed a malignancy from the world. Just then, Lieutenant Corrigan makes the scene to clean up, and in the last panel, it seems to dawn on both Crawford and Dr. Thirteen that there seems to be some connection between Corrigan and the Spectre. In Ghosts number 99, the Dr. Thirteen's story is called Death and the Spectre, and this time out, Michael Adams is inked by Tony DeZuniga, who had been no stranger, of course, to Dr. Thirteen, and DeZuniga makes all the difference in the art. The finale of this three-potter is depicted with the darkness and moodiness that DeZuniga was capable of bringing. His Spectre, especially, is by far the biggest improvement over the last two stories. So this tale begins weeks after the last. Dr. Thirteen is convinced there's some connection between Police Lieutenant Jim Corrigan and the murdering Spectre, though he's not convinced that the Spectre is an actual ghost. This is a point of disagreement between Thirteen and his mentor, Paul Geist. Dr. Thirteen is taken to tailing Corrigan, and after, after a reported bank holdup, Thirteen finds it strange that Corrigan would park around the corner from the incident. By the time Thirteen reaches the bank, he hears screams from inside and finds in the bank the robbers confronted by the Spectre. As the Spectre attacks the bad guys, a stray bullet creases Dr. Thirteen's skull. As he loses consciousness, he hears the Spectre claiming that all men must one day meet their fate. Dr. Thirteen comes to in a weird fantasy landscape, and, and he's met by the Spectre. Thirteen insists that he is hallucinating, but the Spectre claims that this situation is all too real. Terence Thirteen is dying. Now, Terence, of course, wants proof of this. <laughs> he wants to know what makes the Spectre think he can be the judge, jury, and executioner of every criminal he comes across. Spectre claims that he is but the servant of a higher power. Would anyone choose death as his constant companion? And the Spectre points toward a line thousands long of all the dead he sentenced. Dr. Thirteen emphatically, but stubbornly, in spite of all that he's recently witnessed, claimed that his daddy taught him there's no such thing as ghosts. In a final attempt to convince Dr. Thirteen, the Spectre produces the ghost of Terry's father, who says he was wrong. An afterlife does exist, and from there he's been watching his son, and he's proud of the work he's done. Terry seems to waver in this emotional moment, and the two move into an embrace, but at the last second, Terry defiantly rips away a ghostly handkerchief from his father's ghost suit, and screams at the specter that it must be some trick. He then hears the voice of Marie calling him back to consciousness as he's being tended by paramedics. Apparently Thirteen had tripped on his way into the bank and knocked himself out cold. 
it appears that the bank robbers got away. Was that entire last scenario, that last scene, was it all a dream? Despite still clinging to the white handkerchief in his hand, this kind of sidesteps what may or may not have actually happened, but it causes Terry to somehow recommit to his life of ghostbusting. And in the last panel, the specter, you see the specter walking away with the ghost of Terry's father toward what looks like hellfire. It seems the specter's job all along, at least these last three issues of ghosts, was to be rejected by Dr. Thirteen to put Terry back on the path fate had chosen for him. Which is an interesting idea that in the grand scheme of things, at least in DC's cosmology, Dr. Thirteen seems to be filling some necessary role, the role of the doubter, the questioner. I think it's also interesting what Paul Kupperberg pulled off in this story. On one hand, he's played Dr. Thirteen himself, and he's debunked the curse of the Thirteen, at least as far as Terry's father goes. It wasn't a curse that killed him, but, but a greedy business partner. And on the other hand, he's preserved... Terry Thirteen's obliviousness as the supernatural events that are happening all around him. You know, the writer's in on it, the artists are in on it, the readers are in on it, but Dr. Thirteen? Poor Dr. Thirteen. And that's it for this story. Um, this three-parter would be collected many years later in Showcase Presents the Spectre volume. Which is, I think, an interesting choice, as it seems more like a Doctor Thirteen story, more than a Spectre one, but I guess you have to fill the 500 pages of those volumes somehow. And that kind of brings us to the end of this Halloween episode. Let me know if you have any thoughts on Doctor Thirteen or the Spectre. You can leave a comment on the blog, imthegun.blogspot.com. Also on the blog, you'll find several images from the issues discussed, so check those out. You can find me on Twitter, where I post as at Mark Sweeney Jr., or Tumblr, where I'm Messenger Attack. You can also email me at imthegun, I-M-T-H-E-G-U-N, at gmail.com. Previous episodes of I'm the Gun can be found on the blog or on iTunes. Just search there for I'm the Gun. All right, I'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. I think I'm due next for a reboot review, where I'll be having a look at a couple of issues of Legion of Superheroes. So until then, make sure you brush your teeth, but happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.